0: <sighs> Part four of this is war. All right, um, we're going to be talking today about some critical, critical components to, when it comes to understanding and winning the spiritual battles you're up against, in particular, the critical component of Christian community. we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 12 and that passage we're gonna be um, working through is gonna be on this study guide you were given, hopefully, when you came in. If not, somebody around you probably has one you can look on uh, with, or you can just pull out your own Bible or Bible app as we talk about this together. And then later we're gonna shift over to Luke 22 uh, to talk about that some as well. Let's see what the writer of of Hebrews uh, says here as we get started. I'm just gonna read the first part of the first verse. He says in Hebrews 12, verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Who's he talking about here? Who are these witnesses that surround you as you're running this race God has before you? Well, if you read Hebrews 11, it would seem as the writer of Hebrews is saying that that cloud of witnesses, your witnesses, are Old Testament heroes. Uh, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Rahab the prostitute is in the list. Like all these heroes of faith are the, are the ones that make up your cloud of witnesses. And I believe they are in some way a part of your cloud of witnesses. But I think more importantly, they sort of symbolize the the kind of people who are in your, or should be in your inner circle. And so when we're talking about your cloud of witnesses that surrounds you, protects you, watches your back, has your six, encourages you, um, uh, holds you accountable, uh, keeps your eyes on the path instead of distracted, we're talking about people in your life who walk by faith and not by sight. That's what the people in Hebrews 11 represented that, that that Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11 represent the people in your life who walk by faith in Christ. And so the question then is, who are these people for you? I'm going to challenge you to, to really identify those people today. To, to leave here today knowing who your cloud of witnesses is is. Who is in that cloud supporting you? All right. Um, so we've already talked about the importance of knowing your enemy, and the, knowing the enemy is very important. You can't win a war without knowing your enemy, but it's every bit as important that you know who's on your side as well, that you know who's fighting alongside of you, that you know your brothers and sisters who've flanked you your whole life, who have watched out for you. And so if you know your enemy, that's great, but knowing your um, friendlies is important as well Because in this fight We've been talking about for four weeks now You're going to face moments Where you feel utterly surrounded You're going to face These moments where you feel Like defeat is imminent Because you're going to look forward At the future And you're going to see nothing but fear And uncertainty And it's going to paralyze you You're going to be crippled by what you see, that fear, that uncertainty of the future. And then you're going to look behind you and you're going to see your past still chasing you. That stuff you thought you left behind is still coming after you, trying to claim you. And your enemy is going to be whispering in your ear, remember what you did? I know who you really are. You're a fraud. Everyone else thinks you're something else, but I know who you really are. You're going to let those voices creep in. You're going to have distractions of many kinds on all sides, seeking to get you off the path God wants you to be on. That's just a reality. Jesus never said he came to make your life easy. And he came to make every single path clear. And so you might have Noah and Rahab in your cloud of witnesses. That's fine. But you better have some people you talk to every day in your cloud of witnesses. So the people who walk by faith and not by sight, the ones closest to you who really know you, the ones you break bread with, the ones you get into the word with, the ones you confess your sins to, the ones who know you implicitly and can hold you accountable without being judgmental. You know these people. Hopefully you do. The truth is a lot of us don't because a lot of us have bought into the lie that we're supposed to be self-sufficient, never reliant, never vulnerable, never transparent, never weak, always standing on our own two feet, especially men. Listen to me, guys. You've been told this lie. Many of us have bought this lie, and we're worse off for it. And we have no real set of friends that are good for us That not only pick up the phone when we call, but they know what we're really saying. They can read between the lines. We can be honest with them. We can tell them everything. And they can be our cloud, right? But the Bible presents this idea of a cloud of witnesses as a protective force field. That is vital to your overcoming in this spiritual struggle. Because... No matter how faithful you get, no matter how Christian you are, there will be times, and you might be at one of these times right now, there will often be times, days or months, seasons where you feel surrounded by the enemy, and every direction you look is a threat. You look forward to the future, you feel fear, anxiety, overwhelmed by uncertainty. You look back behind you, your past is still chasing you. And the voices from your past are still telling you lies that who you were is who you are. And who they think you are is not who you really are. I know who you really are. Like those kinds of lies hunting you down from behind. You've got distractions on all sides. And if you don't have a cloud of witnesses that's closer to you than the enemies are, you will be susceptible to attack, defenseless, Because what a great cloud of witnesses does when it surrounds you closer than those forces do is it drowns out the voices of the darkness in your life. And whenever the voices from your past say, we know who you really are, you're living a lie, you're a fraud, You know, uh, who you were is who you are and all that stuff. The voices in your cloud of witnesses, when you call them, when you get together and break bread and confess and pray together, they'll be the voices telling you who you really are, a child of the living God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, worth the love of God. Right? So if those voices are closer to you than the others, then they'll drown out those other voices. And it's very important in terms of overcoming in this, uh, in this struggle, uh, keeping the cloud closer than the enemy is. All right. So I would just ask you as we start out today, can you, before this sermon, can you identify your cloud? Do you know who the cloud of witnesses is? Who do you have on speed dial? Who do you confess your sins to? Who do you get honest and transparent with? Who are you laid bare with? Who, can, who really knows you to encourage you, to hold you to account? If you don't, if you don't know who I'm talking about, then, then don't, feel, don't feel threatened or don't feel like I'm piling on. A lot of us struggle with this. But I just want you to know you don't have to fight alone. If you seek a cloud of witnesses, you'll find it. If you ask God for a cloud, he'll give it to you. Like, if you're receptive to it, it's yours. Um, but you have, to, you have to really shift your paradigm and not be so self-reliant and self-sufficient. You have to be more vulnerable with people and making time for this um, priority. So my, my suggestion would be, until you know who's in your cloud of witnesses, you'll always be susceptible to these kinds of attacks. Let's keep going in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, this is the end of verse One, after it says a great cloud of witnesses, let us then throw off everything that hinders us and the sins that so easily entangle us. Um, It was interesting to me to learn this week that um, that word entangles. For some of you in your Bibles, if you have an older translation of the Bible, it'll say the sin that so readily distracts because that Greek word can mean both symbolically. It can either mean distracts or entangles. And it really doesn't matter. It's both the same. If you've ever been deep in sin, you know that sin entangles you. It sort of wraps you up in a web of deceit, but it can also distract you from what really matters. It can take your eyes off your salvation and keep your eyes focused on the momentary feeling of lostness. Like, that's what sin does. When we talk about distraction, I think we're talking about the most underrated weapon In your enemy's arsenal, we think that to be distracted is uh, to be innocuous. To be distracted is to be relaxed or to pass the time. The Bible says that distraction is way more serious. Than that, that it is, in fact, a weapon in the, uh, in, in the enemy's arsenal. So the best uh, example or illustration that I've ever found of this was in that book, Screwtape Letters, that C.S. Lewis wrote. And if you've read it, you know what I'm going to say. But if you haven't, I encourage it. Uh, Screwtape Letters is a work of fiction that C.S. Lewis wrote about two demons writing letters back and forth to each other. Um, and when they say the word patient in this excerpt I'm about to read, they're talking about the, the man they're working on to try to get his soul in hell. And when they say the word the enemy... Um, They're not talking about Satan. They're talking about God, obviously, because their enemy is God. So usually when we say the enemy in this space, we're talking about Satan. I don't want you to be confused in just a minute. This enemy is God from this perspective. Check out this excerpt. uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood, the other uh, demon he's writing to, remember, your patient is not like you, a pure spirit, never having been a human. You don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient a sound atheist who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. So he's starting to think about transcendent things, right? And the enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a, in a moment. Before I knew wh- where I was, I saw my 20 years' word beginning to totter And so I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested it was just about time he had some lunch. (laughs) And the enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line. For when I said, quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning, the patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 9073 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life by which he meant the bus and the newsboy was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He is now safe in our father's house. Lewis wrote this illustration of distraction, of the danger of distraction in 1941, decades before televisions became altars in every American living room, decades before the internet took over our lives, decades before social media, decades before the iPhone became an appendage we just can never let go of, decades before Netflix and all these things came in to distract us even more listen if Lewis is saying that distraction was a weapon that the enemy uses against us in 1941 it's safe to say that since then he's gone nuclear like we've got distraction as a daily reality I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with distraction do you I don't know anybody Who doesn't deal with this? Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. We're trying to serve 200 at the same time. We're constantly skimming the surface of life, going from one thing to another, getting distracted by one thing after another, and we think that's real life. You know, with Lewis, it was the newsboy shouting the news. Like, that tells you how old this is, right? But with us, it's a 24-hour news cycle in your face all the time. There's always something new to be outraged about. There's some new firebrand politician to love or hate, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. <clears throat> and we think that's real life. So, what do we do when we can't get out of this cycle of distraction? Well, first, we can keep reading this passage in Hebrews 12, verse 2 through 4. He um, says, do we, do we have this for everybody? Hebrews 12, 2 through 4 um, says, And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we fix our eyes on Jesus because he took the cross, which symbolized shame. Okay, let's take just a step back from this passage and see what the writer is doing here. Because he is intertwining three ideas that are so important to your understanding and overcoming in this battle. But you don't make these connections, usually. I didn't until I got into this passage and studying it. The three ideas I'm talking about are the dangers of distraction... Um, and then there is the, the weapon of shame, and there's the cloud of witnesses. So there is a interconnectedness, a relationship between community, which is your best defense, and shame, which is his best weapon, and distraction, which is his objective for your life. The suggestion here being that your enemy doesn't want to make you a horrible person who ruins lives. He doesn't want to make you a serial killer. He just wants you to have a really awesome fantasy team this year. He wants you to do things that are of no consequence and to do them as well as you can. As many of them as you can. Have multiple fantasy teams this year. Like, I'm picking on fantasy players, but like you can can pick your poison here. Like, just, just stay busy. Keep distracted. Um, that is that is the goal, and the means to that goal for him is shame. That's why Jesus scorning the shame of the cross is so important. I uh, talked on Thursday afternoon. I spent most of the day Thursday, uh, or most of my afternoon Thursday, talking to this guy named Dr. Kurt Thompson, and he is um, a, a Christian and a psychiatrist. He's written several books. His most recent one is called The Soul of Shame. <clears throat> And uh, it was for this uh, Maybe God episode that's coming out on shame. And Julie and the Maybe God team and staff, they kind of had to talk me into doing an episode on shame. Why, you might ask. Well, I'm an arrogant elitist. And I think I have always thought that shame belongs in sort of the self-help aisle. And that it's sort of this PC thing that we're just talking about now because it feels good to talk about how we're too ashamed and we should feel better about ourselves. And that's kind of how I looked down my nose at shame. Everybody in my world sent me that Brene Brown TED Talk over the last five years. and What, you gotta watch this? Oh, I'll totally watch it. I never watched it. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, In my arrogance, that's how I looked at it. Uh, Dr. Thompson taught me a few things about shame. And the big picture is that the reason perhaps I've been avoiding talking about shame isn't because I think it's some silly PC idea. It's because I don't want to talk about my shame. That's the enemy's plan. And I've been falling for it all this time. So Dr. Thompson helped me to kind of figure this out. The first thing he helped me to see is the differences between shame and guilt. I've always conflated the two. I've always kind of thought of them as synonyms. They are not the same things, y'all. Guilt is something you feel when you do something bad to hurt somebody or to do some harm, right? So guilt is about something that you do and shame is far more insidious than that because it's not about something specific you've done to someone specific, it's about your self-image. What you see when you look in the mirror, right? So uh, someone said to me, between services actually, someone in recovery came up to me and he said, for me, <clears throat> guilt is saying uh, I made a mistake. Shame is saying I am a mistake. And when, you, when it comes to guilt, when you do something wrong, there is almost always a remedy. And the guilt inside of you that you feel is the crying out for the remedy. But the remedy can be known, because if it's about a a specific thing that you've done to someone specific, then it's easier to kind of measure what that's worth, what the debt is, how you pay it off, what the cost is to be redeemed, right, to make amends. So if you forgot to do the dishes, maybe some carnations. If you looked at some chick's bikini pictures and you got caught, maybe some roses. You know, that kind of thing. Like, it, it's easier to measure, more or less, what you owe. But shame doesn't come with such a price tag. Shame feels priceless. Shame causes you to feel beyond redemption. Redemption. That There is no clear path to make amends because it's not about something you did. It's about who you are and becoming convinced that there's no way you can be worthy of love, the love of God especially. Shame creeps in and convinces you that if God is real and Jesus is real and the cross is real, it's all for somebody else. And you can tell them about it, but don't believe for a second it's for you because you are unworthy of love. And that is what shame creeps in and, uh, and tells us, and uh, I think I've seen it again and again. Now, the point of shame isn't an end in and of itself. The point of shame is to drive you deeper and deeper into isolation so that you never want to talk about the shame you're in. Are you hearing me? This is the quote that really stood out to me from the book, The Soul of Shame. He writes, so much sin begins as a function of attention. Shame functions first as Satan did with Eve by drawing our attention even in minute moments away from our focus on God's voice telling us that we are loved and that he is pleased with us along with all the necessary sensations, images, and feelings that accompany it. Remember, attention, listen, listen, I had to read this a few times to get it. Attention is the key to the engine that pulls the train of our mind you read it again? Attention is the key to the engine that pulls the train of our mind, and shame's first priority is distraction. Shame's first priority is distraction for the sake of isolating us. You ever watch those nature shows on TV or YouTube? Like, I don't recommend watching them with your small children. I learned that one the hard way a few times. <clears throat> This doesn't end well. I don't know if you've seen the end of this movie, but (laughs) Uh, it ends well for the lion. Um, So what happens is the predators in these shows, they always crouch and wait patiently and they watch for an opportunity to isolate one member of the herd. And when they can isolate one member of the herd, they pounce. That's how predators work on National Geographic shows. But that's how every predator works. In the savannah and in the spiritual realm, predators work the same way. And your enemy always crouches, waiting, watching for any opportunity to separate you from your cloud, to divide you from your herd, so that he can have you to himself because when he has you to himself, he speaks directly to you and not through the filter of your cloud of witnesses. It's easier for you to begin to believe the things, the lies that he tells you that you're no good. So he leads us away from our herd toward isolation, toward distraction, and eventually toward our destruction. Uh, You might have uh, heard in uh, Dr. Thompson's quote earlier when he talked about Eve and Satan in the garden, And it really occurred to me this week, it didn't take very long for shame to become a part of the human story in the Bible. It's like two chapters in, in Genesis, right? At the end of chapter two, everything's great and they're in the Garden of Eden and they're just delightful and everything's perfect and and it says that they were naked and what? Unashamed. It's a very weird use and placement of that word. Why that word? And not some other word. Why unashamed? Well, it's because shame is about to enter the picture in a very real way. And the moment they took of that fruit and ate it, they began hiding from God. And they covered themselves up. They covered their nakedness. And they blamed each other. They turned away from each other. And listen, that is the key difference between something like guilt and something like shame. Guilt will lead you usually to turn toward the person you've wronged. Shame will always seek to turn you away from everyone who cares about you. That's what it does. Emotionally, spiritually, it turns you away from each other. And since Adam and Eve, that's all we've been doing. Wracked by our shame, we turn away from God and hide from each other and go deeper into our dark isolation, and that's where the enemies got us. Jesus came to deal with that. Jesus came to deal with shame. That's why he chose to be born naked like the rest of us. That's why he chose to die naked on the quintessential symbol of human shame, the cross. He died taking on the shame of the world to tell us there's a new way to deal with this insidious thing called shame and to send our enemy a message as well. In um, Luke chapter 22, just uh, hours before they would hang Jesus on that symbol of shame, Jesus is with his disciples, and even after three years of uh, hanging out with Jesus, they're still extremely clueless. They don't get it yet. Jesus is about to die on a cross, about to be arrested, and they're still arguing with each other in Luke 22 about who's going to be his vice president when he's the president and who's going to be the secretary of labor. That's me. And like, like, they're like playing house or something. They're playing government with Jesus and, and still not getting it. And Jesus calls them out on it, and he says, look, this is not about rank. This is not about hierarchy. This is not about power. All those conversations are rife with pride and shame. He said, we're here to serve and not to be served. And then he calls out Simon Peter, my favorite disciple who I've talked a lot about over the years, and he says to Simon Peter these cryptic words in Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, Simon. So Satan asked Jesus to sift the disciples out as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. A couple things happening here. First of all, I guess Satan and Jesus have these sidebar conversations where he's like asking Jesus for things, and... To sift like wheat means to, to separate out, right? To isolate them from each other so that they're vulnerable. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Simon. Jesus knows that Peter is about to betray or to, to deny him three times. Say, I never knew Jesus three times, just hours from when this is happening. And Peter's like, no, I'll never do it. And then he does it three times. And then he's wrecked. He cries. He weeps bitterly, the Bible says. And he runs away and he stops being a disciple for a time. After that, it says that the disciples were hanging out and then Peter was over there somewhere. Like, he wasn't a disciple anymore. Jesus knew all that was gonna happen. That's why he said, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, the enemy's about to break up the band. When you have repented, put the band back together again. Get your cloud in close again. Start breaking bread together again. Listen to each other again. Hold each other accountable again. Gird up your loins and fight this war together again because this has just begun this onslaught, this assault against the devil and the shame that he brings. And and I think that is why that's how Jesus is preparing his disciples for the battle ahead. Strengthen your brothers, bring them back together again. Now, without, I don't want to end this series without getting uh, just real about this. I've talked a lot about my issues in the past with addiction, um, particularly with uh, pornography. Uh, And I don't love this conversation. I think it's important. And several people in recovery from different things have come up to me and, and shared their gratitude for talking about this. When I look back, at how enslaved I was, Um, it's clear to me now that I was not so much a porn addict in those days as I was a distraction addict. And some of the distractions seemed innocuous, like the fantasy leagues or, you know, little league baseball coaching or (laughs) whatever, I don't know, just silly things. And then there was darker stuff too. But the core issue wasn't the porn and stuff. That was just symptomatic of the deeper issue that I still continue to wrestle with to this day. I'm still striving for recovery from my addiction to distraction. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Six years ago, Jesus saved me. And he reminded me of who I really am. I'm not that addict. I'm not as shallow as I've been living. It's not who I really am. He told me who I really am. And then he surrounded me with a cloud of witnesses. And I'm not talking about hundreds of people in my inner circle or even dozens. I'm talking about like three or four. That's all you need to know. Three or four names. People who really know you and love you unconditionally, and will speak life into you. That's what I want for you. As I looked around the room during the songs we sang earlier, I was continually brought to tears because of how weighty this is and how much is at stake. And if you're a parent... You need to know that this enemy wants to distract you more than anyone, because if he can distract you, then the battles you should be fighting get passed on to your kids. This is your moment to stand in the gap, to put your phone down and turn the TV off and pick up a Bible or get on your knees and pray with your kids and fight This is the moment to get the band back together, to put the cloud in its place, to bring the cloud in close, closer than your enemies, so that you hear the voices of those in your cloud over the voices of your enemies. This is the time to play your part in someone else's cloud and to speak truth and life into their lives. This is the moment to fight. And every war that's ever been fought has had its own particularities and has been unique in its own way, but every war has this in common. No war has ever been fought alone. War is always a team sport. Who is in your cloud? If you don't have one, how will you form one? How will you seek one? Ask God to help you. Seek one. Reach out for it. Actively pursue it. And you can have it. You need not fight this battle alone. If you're not a Christian yet, I... I would just say uh, that line, fixing your eyes on Jesus, means no longer being a scattered person, but just fixing your eyes and making him the center. There's no better place to fix your eyes. There's no better person to chase after than him. Make him the center of your life today. And He will equip you for whatever battle you're facing, whether it's addiction, whether it's depression, whether it's self-image or shame, You need not fight it alone. In fact, in Christ, when he took on that burden of shame, he won the war you're fighting. You can walk in victory with him. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I pray for each and every soul in this room right now that we would understand the weightiness and the consequences of Conversations like these we would know there is in fact a force in the universe working against us to shame us into isolation to distract us from our purpose help us to be courageous instead of turning away from you to turn toward you help us to fight the battles in front of us fearlessly, faithfully, as if the victory is already ours. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on our shame and setting us free. In your name we pray, amen.